1: The ringing of bells across playgrounds, that shuffle of shoes down corridors and chalk scraping across blackboards. These are the sounds of school heard the world over. but COVID-19 brought silence to many classrooms. When the coronavirus first emerged, pausing lessons was a forgivable precaution. Question marks remained over how transmissible the virus was and how sick it could make teachers, children and their families. But disruptions lasted long after the answers became clear. Over two years, nearly 153 million children missed more than half of all in-person schooling. More than 60 million missed three quarters, according to UNESCO. Estimates from the McKinsey consultancy suggest that globally, school children are around eight months behind where they would have ordinarily been. Being locked out of the classroom has starved young brains. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, how can COVID-19 learning loss be overcome? My guest is Jaime Saavedra. He's the Global Director of Education at the World Bank, the largest financier of education in the developing world. Mr. Saavedra oversees a financing portfolio of 20 billion US dollars. An economist by training, he joined the bank in 2003 and spent a decade working on poverty reduction. In 2013, he returned to his native Peru to serve as education minister. Under his stewardship, the country's ailing schooling system went from bottom of the class in Latin America to the region's star pupil. Now he's back at the World Bank, and his latest test is how to give the world's school children the best chance of catching up. Hi, Mesa Vedra. Welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Now, you have said that school closures due to the COVID-19 pandemic have caused perhaps the worst educational crisis for a century. At the start of the pandemic, did you expect education to be hit as hard as that?
0: You're absolutely right that this is the worst shock to education of the last century. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were living in a sea of ignorance and many countries chose to close schools without really knowing if that was useful in order to fight the rate of infections. Now, unfortunately, as time passed, the evidence started appearing that actually the usefulness of the school closures in order to fight the pandemic was not that high. Actually, many OECD countries started opening schools even before having a vaccine. But unfortunately in many other countries, uh, the school closures continued despite bars, restaurants and uh, offices started being open. The education side of the crisis, right, is a man-made crisis because as the students are disengaged from the education process that generates uh, learning losses, but one thing is to be closed one week or one month. That is something that you can easily recover. The other thing is to be closed for two years which is what we have seen in South Asia or in Latin America, for example.
1: And how much do we know about the impact of the pandemic on children's levels of education and skills?
0: So let me give you a couple of examples. In countries as different as Brazil and the United States, which are countries in which we were seeing some improvements in learning during the last decade, with the last measures, I mean, a few months ago, we see that learning has gone back to the levels Of 2012 or 2013. So it's like in some countries, uh, this pandemic has wiped out 10 years of progress. Now, if we put together the information that we have for about 20 countries, what we see is that there's some correlation between the length of the school closures and the magnitude of the losses. So roughly, we're seeing that one month of school closures maps to one month of learning on average. So if you have a typical Latin American country or South Asian country in which um, there has been almost two years of school closures, then you can think that those kids are two years behind. So a fifth grader that goes to school today actually will have the skills and the competencies of a third grader on average. But we know that kids are not the same. And we know that not all kids had exactly the same experience during the pandemic.
1: Tell me how much we know about how this impacts earnings potential in the future. Do we know in data terms what the economic impact looks like of missing this amount of schooling?
0: The estimates have been changing. The last one that we have is that for low and middle income countries, this generation, not economies as a whole, but this generation might be losing about $11 trillion in terms of future earnings. Or another way to put it probably in simpler terms is that unless we do something, A typical child or young person who has lost schooling because of this pandemic uh, might have lower levels of productivity that can later map to a reduction in 10% of their lifetime earnings. And that is a gigantic number for this generation. And in these calculations, we're not taking into account something that's going to be much more difficult to recover, which is the fact that early child education was wiped off the map during the pandemic.
1: Of course, this is a worrying picture all around, but if you had to sort of focus on where you think the damage is greatest, are you saying that is in the younger demographic?
0: The data that we have on learning today for some countries already show that kids in earlier grades are losing more than kids in higher grades. On one hand, we don't have data for early child education. On early child education, what we know is that the systems disappeared for very long periods of time. And actually, there was no remote learning at all for early child education systems. You might remember that we have been saying for a long time, starting with all the work that Jim Heckman did, I mean, Nobel Prize in 2011, about the very high social returns and private returns of early child education investments. Well, those investments disappeared completely.
1: As you mentioned earlier, there is a big variation in the length of time that schools were closed due to the pandemic in different countries. Which ones do you think got it right? And where were the countries that you really feel suffered because they kept schools closed for longer than necessary, even given how difficult it was to make that call in the circumstances?
0: We go from countries like Sweden, who basically didn't close at all primary education, closed at some moments, only secondary education. And the thinking there was we don't have evidence that closing schools has a positive impact in fighting the pandemics. So given that we don't have evidence, let's not close it. Most countries in the world closed their uh, their schooling systems, but most of the OECD countries started opening even between the first and second waves. In the United States and Canada, it was very varied across different states and provinces. And I would say that across the world, South Asia and Latin America are the regions that uniformly closed for the longest, almost two years in both cases. And in addition, there were a few other countries, right? So in Africa, for instance, Uganda closed for almost two years. In East Asia, Philippines have very, very long school closures. They just opened their schools just very, very recently. Indonesia also had long school closures. From a regional perspective will be South Asia and Latin America, the ones that kept their systems closed for the longest.
1: And schools seem to be kept shut for a long time in places with powerful teaching unions. Mexico is an example, parts of the United States. There was even pressure from trade unions in the UK often to keep schools closed when others were advocating for them opening. Do you believe that there's responsibility there? That Obviously, they were concerned to protect their members, the school staff. But do you think there is a responsibility for the kind of lag that we're seeing now in education?
0: I think there is some we cannot say though let's let's blame unions because I think in many countries has been a combination of both political factors but also some lack of attention or lack of interest of society in general right because you could have seen in some countries uh, unions saying no, we don't want to return but then very active civil society or parents saying no no no, we do want to go back but you didn't see, those clashes in terms of opinion. We also saw very disparate reactions from different governments. I remember talking with Danish officials just four months into the pandemic, uh, and they were saying, we really need to go back soon because kids are losing a lot, and we're really worried about uh, marginalized children. And we're talking about Denmark that has 100% internet connection. And on the other extreme, then you find other countries that have been very indolent and have started opening other parts of the economy and not schools. So that's something that to a certain extent should worry us, right, in terms of what's the real value that societies are giving to education and how in many, many countries, the interest of children was not something that was front and center in the public policy debate. So that's something that should really worry us.
1: I think it's a very interesting indicator of the view of education within national cultures, within politics and priorities. And we reported in The Economist that in some countries where schools have reopened, as as you've just reflected, such as Mexico, by no means all children are back at their desks. Sometimes that can be legacy worries about COVID-19 or COVID-19 coming back. But it might also be that there's a sense that education is important, but not so important that you can't miss out on some of it. And I would suggest that given the focus that we've seen in education around the world in the last few years, that would indicate that something is not getting through. So what needs to change?
0: I think something is not getting through and I think to a certain extent even if parents are worried, which is totally understandable, but parents are not epidemiologists. So parents need to receive orientation and guidance from the authorities. So. What matters a lot in these cases is is leadership, is leadership that can provide the right information to parents. And if you have the right leadership, then you could have information campaigns that explain why going to school under certain conditions, of course, is safe. And that the alternative is very, very large costs that our children are bearing.
1: Can I ask you a bit about the practical measures that you think will help catch up if business as usual won't be enough. What are you really advocating for? So let's say I'm an incoming government and my education minister's got to focus on this. What are you going to be saying to them that they need to do more of?
0: Obviously, it's a great step that schools are open to start with. But even once that step is taken, authorities have to be worried about very intensive communications campaigns at the macro level, a lot of work of the schools with community ensuring that kids come back to school. Some are completely disengaged from the education systems, others might be working. So uh, that's not going to be automatic or that's not being today automatic. So one first uh, line of action is to ensure that everyone returns to school. A second critical line of action is assessing the levels of learning today. We don't have a lot of data because a lot of countries are not measuring learning again. Even middle-income countries who do have systems to measure learning, now they're postponing those measurements and they're flying totally blind. A key line of action is to assess where is learning in each country so that you can then design policies accordingly. A third thing is the need to prioritize within the curriculum. I mean, we need to be pragmatic right? You cannot cover all the uh, subjects that usually are in the curriculum. You need to be pragmatic, prioritize foundational skills, prioritize, at least in primary, literacy, numeracy, and social emotional skills. And then fourth, it's absolutely essential that we teach each student at the level that they need. You cannot say, I'm going to teach what the curriculum say. I need to teach at the level of each child. So teachers need support in order to confront a much more complicated classroom. All this depicts a very complex public policy challenge, that it's difficult, but it's absolutely essential and it's urgent. And finally, many other countries are implementing extra tutoring, remedial education, bringing volunteers to support teachers. So there's a many of policies that countries can implement.
1: So I think what you're saying is it's quite a mix of policies and perhaps reprioritizing to move on, but let's look at the funding for that, if you like, the financial plumbing of the education system, which is so important, particularly in the context we're discussing today. And the World Bank has shown, via its recently collected data, that around 40% of low and lower middle income countries have cut expenditure on education with the onset of the, the pandemic by an average of 13.5%. How can we? persuade governments to restructure spending and boost it, especially at a time when there are so many other calls on public finances. Really, I find myself quite often going around the world, people telling me, go and spend the money on healthcare, go and spend it on resilience, go and spend it on job support. And we're robbing Peter to pay Paul. And education seems to be whoever gets more robbed, whether it's Peter or Paul, but education does appear to be in that category.
0: But education has been one of the robbed ones, right? Unfortunately, and it shouldn't. And it is true that governments are facing a very complex situation because you have a, a jobs crisis, a health crisis, a food crisis, an energy crisis. I mean, you have a war in the middle. But unfortunately, it is absolutely essential to prioritize education because, right, that's one of your highest returns in terms of growth in the future and in the medium term. It is a tough job for the bank and other institutions, right, to have these complex dialogues that is needed with governments in terms of trying to persuade to increase the share of expenditures that goes to education. That's a typical battle between. A minister of education and a minister of finance, and I have been in that side of the table. But one thing that I think is critical is that sometimes the education community says that look, changes in education take time. It is true, I mean, structural changes in in the quality of education systems might take time, but it is also true that you can make changes in education in terms of the quality of the interaction of teachers and students and making sure that the minimum levels of materials are in schools and that can have an impact on the quality of learning in the short run. You can make changes in two or three years if you put the right design and you have the political will to do it. So it's not true that all changes in education will have returns only in the, in the long term. You can see changes in the experience of students and teachers and parents in the relatively short term.
1: Gordon Brown, the UN Special Envoy for Global Education, a former British Prime Minister, has suggested the World Bank should lend more to low-income countries for education. 11% at the moment is spent by the International Development Association on education. He's suggesting that the World Bank should spend 15%. Couldn't the, the bank itself be using its resources in pursuit of the goals that you're outlining?
0: So the bank has increased, actually, loans and grants to education uh, substantially during the last years. Actually, the last three years, we're averaging about $5 billion of additional commitments to education yearly. And in terms of how much we lend to uh, low-income countries, which, true, it's, it's around 11%. I wish it would be higher, but it's not that the bank can decide unilaterally OK, it's not going to be 11 percent. It's going to be 15 or it's going to be 20 because the World Bank has a country driven model. It is a negotiation with countries in which it is defined how much the country wants to use uh, resources or financial support from the bank in roads, in health, in education, etc. So from my perspective, from the education side of the bank, for me, it should not be 15. I mean, ideally, it should be 20. But it is a matter of having a discussion and persuading countries in order to do that.
1: If I were to ask you if you think with whatever means you're able to advocate for and you get some degree of success, can these losses be recovered? What would you say to me?
0: Yes, it can. It is doable. I mean, this menu of policies that we were discussing before is something that we are seeing that some countries are already implementing, right? We see countries like Brazil or Chile or the state of Gujarat in India or the state of Edo in Nigeria or, or Ghana who are taking the right steps, right, in terms of implementing this many of policies at scale. In some cases, it requires some additional resources, but my sense is that the main binding constraint is political will. Right this is all these policies are complex public policies, of course, but it's not something that is impossible to implement, but it really requires political will and actually i mean this this is not something that one could predict right It is something that we need to fight for, as I've said in other moments, I mean we are in a battle against uh, learning poverty right? We are now waging a war against learning poverty. So that has to be the way countries see that. I mean, we're not in uh, normal circumstances. We really need to mobilize the whole society in order to make sure that this generation have the right support and we can save this generation.
1: Political will is obviously so important in any education push. You certainly had it when you were education minister and very well received for the advances that you made between around 2013 and 2016. The difficulty, it seems to me, is not finding people like yourself who have an outstanding commitment and political will when they've got their hands on the levers. It's how do international institutions put as much resilience into the system as possible, even when the political will sometimes evaporates. There is a firmer foundation. And I wonder just from your experience, how you would approach that?
0: So international organizations can help, yes, of course, can help and can leverage reform efforts of countries. But actually, it's difficult to replace the national efforts. I mean, if you see the countries who have made it in education are countries that actually have taken the political decision of making sure that all education decisions are done in a technical way and have taken politics out of the decision-making on education. The countries who have decent education systems are countries in which teachers or principals or bureaucrats are not there because of political affiliation. And that's a political decision, right? Let's take all decisions in education, taking always into account only the interest of students and children.
1: Is there anything that you think we've learned from it, slightly on the the upside from having to change the way that we delivered education in the pandemic?
0: So I think there are two lessons from the pandemic in that regard. First of all, education is about human interaction. So it's very difficult to replace schools as a social space and it's very difficult to replace that magic of learning that happens when you have a good teacher-student relationship. At the same time, we have learned that there is a gigantic digital divide, that now technology is not yet an equalizer factor, is an unequalizing factor as of today. But actually the future then will be about that balance. The future would be about ensuring that the human factor that is critical in education can be supported better by technology. The future would be the art of balancing the human factor with technology. Technology, yes, can be critical to improve the quality of education, but technology is about leveraging the work of teachers and principals.
1: Hi, May Saavedra. Thank you very much indeed for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for the invitation.
1: And do let us know what you think. How have you, your children, or maybe your grandchildren, been affected by COVID learning loss? Write to us with your stories, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. My top podcast pick this week is our new series, The Prince, an investigation into the rise of the most powerful man on earth, Xi Jinping. My colleague, Su Lin Wong, unearths his story from a turbulent childhood to becoming Chinese Communist Party royalty. It's a must listen. Do hear it wherever you get your podcasts. But to enjoy full access to all of our journalism in print, online and more, become a subscriber. We have a special introductory offer for our listeners. To find out more, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in Halifax, Canada, where I find myself this week, this is The Economist.